Hi friends, uh, we're looking at chapter 3 of Ephesians today. Uh, and since we are going to look at the whole chapter, uh, we're not going to take time to read it, but I encourage you to take the time on your own to read the chapter and meditate on it and look at it later. So Paul begins chapter 3 uh, by taking a digression from his previous writing. Uh, this is a very normal pattern for ancient writers. And from verses 2 to 13, Paul is going to talk about his own calling, his commission to share God's revealed plan of unifying Jew and Gentile, and of the proclaiming the good news that God has welcomed the Gentiles into the family of God. Ephesians 3 verse 6 essentially summarizes the second half of chapters 2. Uh, Paul writes, and this is God's plan. Both Gentiles and Jews who believe the good news share equally in the riches inherited by God's children. Both are part of the same body. Both enjoy the promise and blessing because they belong to Christ Jesus. So the NLT actually does a really good job of capturing the Greek in, in verse 6. All the nouns begin with the same prefix meaning with. And so the Gentiles are now co-inheritors, co body members, co-partakers of the promise. Together, Jews and Gentiles share in the hope of participating in the cosmos made right when all things are unified in Jesus. So after this recap and explanation of his own ministry, suddenly in verse three, uh, chapter 3, verse 10, the story takes a bit of a shift. Paul writes that God's purpose in all this was to use the church to display his wisdom in its rich variety to all the unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was his eternal plan, which he carried out through Christ Jesus, our Lord. So the first few verses in Ephesians 3, it, it looks like this work of making God's plan known belonged to Paul, maybe to some apostles, to the prophets. But suddenly Paul is saying, look, the task of making God's wisdom known is not up to Paul, not up to the prophets, not up to the apostles or anyone other than you. You, the church, you are called to be the way in which God makes his great wisdom known. And so there's a lot of unpacking to do in this verse. Uh, first, like, who are these rulers and authorities in the heavenly places? Well, Paul has already told us that these are angelic powers in Ephesians 1, verse 21. In Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 3, Paul told us that these powers dominate life for those who are outside of Christ. In Ephesians 6, 11, we'll learn that these powers fight against us. They work against our ability to live out the gospel faithfully. And so within this worldview of Paul, Paul believed that God had originally created spiritual powers to ensure justice and the proper ordering of creation. But these powers rebelled against God and now hold creation enslaved. Uh, 1 Corinthians 2.8 implies that the rulers and authorities, these spiritual powers, were at work in the crucifixion of Jesus. They influence people. They make it hard for the church. They engage the, uh, and the church is engaged in a cosmic warfare against them. And so then, when the church becomes a place of diverse people who are reconciled to one another and to God. They live out the victory of Jesus. When the church is a place in which the destructive practices and patterns of our life are set aside, we live in the victory of Jesus. When the church is a place of peace, a place of reconciliation with God, we are living in the victory of Jesus, and we are declaring to these powers the victory of God. 
Ephesians 2 verse 6 says that you and I, those who believe in Christ, are already seated in the heavens at the right hand of God. In other words, we are seated in the same area, the same plane as these cosmic powers and authorities. And so it would be naive for us to forget about them. Heavens is another uh, idea that just needs to be unpacked out of this verse. So heavens is uh, used five times by Paul in Ephesians. First, he says that all blessings come from heaven in Ephesians 1.3. Uh, Ephesians 1.20, Christ is seated at God's right side in the heavens. But in Ephesians 2.6, believers are raised up to the heavens to be seated next to God. And in Ephesians 3.10, the powers and authorities are in the heavens. And then in 6.12, Paul will again talk about these powers and authorities in the heavens that we struggle against. All of this uh, activity in the heavens, I think, should lift our eyes up to the cosmic scope of God's redemptive mission. You see, uh, Paul sees a direct connection between what happens in the heavens and what happens here on earth. Even though we live here on earth, our behavior, our lives have cosmic significance. Uh, one note I read said, the evil powers want to tempt us to live in rebellion against God. These behaviors will keep us in spiritual death. Believers battle against the heavenly powers by living in obedience to Jesus, by loving one another, by being gentle and patient with each other, and by being united. So I, I get it, right? We live in a modern scientific world. This whole notion of cosmic powers and authorities who enslave people who aren't in Jesus, powers that are hostile to us in the church, powers that are observing the witness of the church, it, it can all seem a little odd. Um, part of the problem I think is that we sometimes have a very poor experience with those who love this spiritual battle stuff. Um, there's a lot of abuse that has been done in the guise of spiritual battle, right? Some people live in a high state of anxiety and fear because they're afraid that somehow unknowingly they will fall under the influence of evil spiritual powers. Um, so how do we address this? How, how does a person of faith speak of these things to the skeptic? Uh, and that's a that's a tricky question. One of the things that's important to remember is that for us who might be living in this modern scientific world where we'd like to make this about structures or about um, uh, yeah other other things, it's just to remember that the, in the two thirds world this is considered normal. This isn't a problem, uh, and it's our problem, not maybe the world's problem. Uh, two things I'll, I'll say maybe to help us address it. One is to ease your panic. The other one is to, um, yeah, why we should accept Paul's cosmic view. So the first one is that if you are feeling anxious that you might accidentally fall under the power of some demon or something like that, let me say that Paul doesn't seem to share this view. Uh, Paul talks about these powers, and yet he isn't anxious or fearful about them. In Ephesians 6, which we'll get to hopefully in a few weeks, he says, put on the armor of God so you can stand firm against all the strategies of the devil. In other words, Paul says, be prepared, don't be lazy, but you will know the attacks and you can stand against these. You will know when you are being attacked. He clearly believes that the, the believer can be victorious over the enemy. Uh, I don't fear for any Christian who is seeking to live in a close relationship with the Heavenly Father. For those who pursue Jesus and his heart, the, the enemy is a reality, but this should not cause fear. It should not minimize, uh, we should not minimize the impact of these powers in our lives and society, 
And yet at the same time, we need to remember that we are already currently right in this moment seated in the heavens at the right hand of God. Uh, second, a reason I think that we should believe in these cosmic powers is, is quite simply Jesus. As I see Jesus in the Gospels, I see that he does battle with corrupted systems of the rulers of earth, those religious and political powers and leaders of his day, but he also battled cosmic spiritual forces. As a person who claims that Jesus is my king, I then have to believe him when he teaches and models for me the realities of a spiritual cosmic realm that there are cosmic rulers and authorities. It, it might be overly simplistic, but I don't get to tell Jesus that cosmic powers and authorities are out of fashion now, and I'm just going to demystify what he taught. So what is the point of all of this? Uh, here's what I want us to see, and I actually think it's a powerful and beautiful. It is this, that the church is cosmic in size and cosmic in influence. How sad when the church becomes engaged in small battles over land or politics. How misguided the church becomes when it becomes consumed with the little things around us. The church is called to be a witness of the cosmic reign and rule of Jesus. The church is called to exert its witness to the world and to the heavens. When the church lives in unity, witness, community, justice, it proclaims the cosmic reality of Jesus. Our view of church is too small. And when we think of it as our local congregation or our congregations in the city or our denomination or our worldwide denomination, it is too small because the church is a cosmic reality. The church living in reconciled relationship and unity says to the cosmic powers, look at God's great and mysterious plan to unite all things in Christ. Perhaps even our unity and witness as the church to the powers will even persuade some to leave their rebellion and be reunited with Christ. So all of this to say our vision of church is too small. And so obviously Paul's message cannot be told only by Paul or by prophets or by apostles. A cosmic vision of what the church does requires every person in the church to live like it is true, to declare that God is reconciling the world to himself. And so then given this sweeping story of the church, Paul then is moved to pray. And Ephesians, if 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 Ephesians 3.10 expanded our vision of the church and the work of the church, verses 14 to 21 expand our vision of what God can do through us and it would lift our hearts to praise. In this amazing prayer, starting in verse 14, Paul prays for three things for the church. That God would give strength and power through the Spirit, that God would grasp the love of God, that we would grasp the love of God, and that we would be filled with the fullness of God. So first, that the Spirit would give us power and strength. It's good to remember that this work is always done in community. The Spirit is given to us for the sake of community. The Spirit in Ephesians is the divine force that God is building unity with. Uh, it is inspiring songs of worship for the community. It gives the tools to engage in the spiritual battle that we fight together. The Spirit of God filling us with strength and power is to be used for the community, for the strengthening and encouraging and building up of those around us. 
I also think it's just really important to remember anytime we talk about power or empowering, we need to remember that this is the power of the cross. It is the ultimate act of service that you and I are empowered to serve and love others. Paul's second request is that we would understand how deep the love of Christ is. Uh, verse 18 in the NLT is not actually a very good translation. It says, And may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, how deep his love is. Uh, but the Common English Bible says, I ask that you will have the power to grasp love's width, height, length, depth. Oh, I messed that up. Sorry. Uh, they, I ask that you'll have the power to grasp love's width and length, height and depth, together with all believers. Uh, this is more in line with the NIV, which says, together with the Lord's holy people. You see, this experience of God's love is a shared knowledge. God makes himself known to us and helps us grow in community. This is a very real, personal experience of God's love for each of us. And each of us is invited to personally know, intellectually and emotionally, the vast, endless love of God for you. However, it is also meant to be expressed and experienced and known in the context of community, of the church. Which leads to thought Paul's third request. He says, then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. Again, the, the NLT sort of obscures what Paul is saying. Uh, the NIV says, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Or the CEB, so that you will be filled entirely with the fullness of God. That you will be filled with the fullness of God. That should stretch your imagination. Like Paul's prayer is that you and I will be filled filled full of the fullness of goodness, of grace, of mercy, of truth, of wisdom, of power, and love, and a whole lot more. Paul prays that the church would be brimming and overflowing with grace and mercy, goodness, truth, self-sacrificing power, wisdom, endless, infinite love. If each of us is being filled this way, of course we will experience the love of God in community. Uh, 200 years ago, uh, or 200 years after Jesus, there was a North African Christian named Tertullian. Uh, he, he wrote in his defense of Christianity that, Christianity that Christians were famous among their critics, and they would say, look how they love one another. Over the last few hundred years of Christian history, we've had many revivals in the world. However, to me, though, there, there's a fundamental difference between most of the revivals in the last few centuries and the world that we live in today. The reality is that while people like Charles Wesley were incredibly successful in preaching and seeing people come to the church, most of those people were nominal Christians or Christians who turned their back on Jesus. Um, but the society around these people at the time seemingly was very Christian. It may be if only in name only. Today, I think we have far more in common with the world of Tertullian than Wesley or D.L. Moody. Uh, the church's most effective witness to the powers and to the world will not be great sermons or charismatic preachers. The most effective witness of the church will not be door-to-door -door evangelism or tracts put on people's windshields. It's not going to be through rallies or protests of laws that seem to go against Christian ethics. The church's greatest witness will not be found in awesome programming or worship services. The profound and most eternally persuasive witness of the church has, I believe, always been and will increasingly be found in the way that Christians love one another.
It will be in the way that Christians are a people who demonstrate the mercy of God to other Christians and those in need. The church grew in the first hundred years after couple first few hundred years after Jesus for one simple reason. Uh, sociologist Rodney Stark put it this way: In the midst of the squalor, misery, illness, and anonymity of ancient cities, Christianity provided an island of mercy and security. Christians who knew the fullness of God's mercy were able to share mercy. Christians who knew that their place in heaven was secured by the victory of Jesus, offered security. Christians who were rooted and established in the vast, unending love of God radically loved each other. And so I have a very practical call to action for us. Uh, I, don't th I, I think that many of us don't imitate Paul's example of prayer. Like how often do we ask for more of, our, more of God for ourselves and for others? And yet here it is in the scripture, Paul inviting us, teaching us that we should pray like this. And so my super practical, very serious call to action for each one of you is this. Set your timer for 3.14 p.m. every day. And every day at 3.14, pray these eight verses from Ephesians 3.14 to the end of the chapter. Uh, pray it twice, once for yourself and once for someone you know. Let's learn from Paul and see how this shapes our lives over the next few weeks. Grace and peace.